Pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are gathered here this morning because we know that we should worship you, we should seek you, that you give us meaning and purpose. And even one who is here who might have doubts, they know that they should seek the answers from you. And so, Father, we thank you today for the truth of your word. In fact, we love your word because in it you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for teaching us to submit to the authority of your word because what you have told us is what is best even for us. Lord, we pray that you will help us to grow in greater dependency on Jesus Christ today in accordance with your word. In his name we pray, amen. We're going to be in John 13 this morning because John uh, chapters 13 to 17 take place at the, the same setting that Jesus institutes the Lord's table, communion. So we're running this series simultaneously on communion Sundays while we're also having our series through Acts. Now, what's really interesting about this passage is that it is um, the section where Jesus talks about God's glorification through his sacrifice and how his love is most plainly seen in his sacrifice and how Christians should be marked by a similar love for one another. But in that context, the context of the Lord's table, there's a definite backdrop of betrayal looming over the proceedings. It's mentioned when Paul gives his instruction to the Corinthian church. It's given in the context of Luke 22, when Jesus institutes the Lord's table. And here, especially in John uh, 13, verses 18 to 38. So here's what we will aim to see and apply today. Through Christ, we can trust God's sovereign will beyond betrayal, focusing on the glory God receives and obeying Christ's command to love one another in the sufficiency he provides. After giving them a living illustration by washing their feet of how they should, humble, how they should be humble servant leaders, Jesus has said, though, that, that they will be blessed if they do these things. However, that doesn't apply to every one of the 12 because one among them is false. Read with me John 13, 18 to 30. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at 
at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Why doesn't Judas's betrayal unravel Jesus? Why doesn't this betrayal of a close friend unravel Jesus? Jesus clearly knows about it before it takes place. And it tell, the text tells us that he's troubled by it. He's troubled in his spirit. But it doesn't undo him, and it doesn't halt his obedience. Why not? Because God's sovereign will can be trusted beyond the betrayal of created beings. Did not even some of the heavenly hosts that God created betray him? And yet God's sovereign will can be trusted beyond the betrayal of his created beings. Verse 18, we see that even as Jesus has been teaching them by the example of foot washing, that they must be loving servants as he is to them, and that by doing so they will be blessed, he says, but I don't speak of every one of you. Jesus is referring to the same concept that he already mentioned and John explained at verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean, referring to Judas. And then he says, I know whom I have chosen. Judas was in fact among the 12 whom Jesus had chosen to be his disciples. John chapter 6, verses 70 to 71, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. But as proof that God's sovereign plan goes forward, even in the sinful choices of men, there's a typological prophecy fulfilled from Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. What treachery indeed to lift a, a heel against one so close as to regularly share table fellowship in their culture. That means they, to be really close, to share table fellowship. We often, in, in our circles, we can relate to this. We often develop friendships in ministry and, and regular fellowship together that are even closer than our own family. Now, the difference is, according to verse 19, yes, Jesus was a friend to Judas, but he didn't entrust himself to Judas because he knew beforehand that Judas would betray him. So I tell you this now, he says to the group, so that when it takes place, you will know that I am he. And this phrase, I am he, is undoubtedly a statement that they will know he is the Christ 
but also with overtones of his deity. And speaking of the fact that Jesus is the great, is the Christ, the I am, he says in verse 20, the one who, who, whom I send receives, or the one who receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. To receive Jesus means to truly accept him and submit to him as Lord and as the only mediator to be reconciled to God, the one who sent him. So to receive the ones who bring the truth of the good news of Jesus would mean they truly receive Jesus. So his disciples, minus Judas, might also be rejected and betrayed. But there would be those who, even as they have done, there would be those who would receive Jesus to be their only means of restoration to God. Again, in verse 21, we see Jesus talking about being, because of this, he's troubled in his spirit. He's stirred up. He's unsettled. Because one, of, one whom he has treated as a dear friend, a close friend, is about to betray him. Verse 22 is very interesting and telling because the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Judas so outwardly conformed to being a disciple of Jesus that the rest of the disciples were none the wiser about his falsehood. Judas so outwardly conformed to being a disciple of Jesus that the rest of the disciples were none the wiser about his falsehood. Falsehood is characterized precisely by some measure of outward conformity so as to appear genuine. But underlying this outward conformity is a lack of true submission to the will of God. So Jesus would say to them in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We even did mighty works and acts of kindness and prophesied in your name. Jesus also taught them when he was teaching them to strive to enter through the narrow door. He says in Luke 13, verses 25 to 27, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, and then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. We even ate and drank in your presence. I believe this falsehood I believe this falsehood is characterized by personal ambition. I think this falsehood is characterized by personal ambition, such that Jesus is a means to an end, rather than to love him and obey him as the end in itself. 
I think that the problem that Judas has is viewing Jesus as a means to an end. And when Jesus doesn't conform to the desire that Judas has, to the selfish ambition that Judas has by attaching himself to Jesus, that is the problem. That's what I believe is at the root. And that's what I believe is at the root of falsehood, is this personal ambition, viewing God as a means to an end rather than to love him and obey him as the end in itself. He is the end. And then in verse 23, we have the first reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe is the Apostle John talking about himself, most likely indicating two things from from his own perspective. This is why I think John talks about himself this way. Two reasons. One, a humble understanding of the unique love of Jesus and the unique privilege to be chosen by Jesus to be his disciple. And then number two, a personal feeling of closeness to Jesus, of relational nearness to Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved me. Verses 23 to 25 describe this setting at the table. They're, they're, they're sitting down at the table. You know, they recline at table, um, and, and it describes John being close enough to such that he must be seated on one side of Jesus so that he can just lean in and talk to him without everyone else hearing and perhaps drawing more attention to himself. And so Peter asks him to ask Jesus, who is it? And John does so. And in verse 26, Jesus simultaneously gives John an answer and also displays the unique depth of his love in a kind gesture of friendship and honor to someone he knows will betray him. He gives him bread. It's a, it's a gesture of kindness, friendship, honor. To be the, the person of, of authority at a, at a meal who's then distributing the bread. But at the same time that he's distributing the bread, he's also telling who it is who will betray him. Verse 27, there's a dark and foreboding comment. Although earlier Judas had already submitted to Satan's desire for him to betray Christ, according to verse 2 of this chapter, now Satan himself enters into Judas, suggesting the idea of possession and therefore of greater influence and control. In the second half of verse 27 and on all the way to verse 29, Jesus saying to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. They don't seem to understand because nearly all of them are still in the dark about his betrayal. And even John wouldn't have known how such betrayal was going to play out. Now he has an indication of who it is, but not how it's going to play out. Some among them thought that Jesus was sending him on an errand to buy something that was needed or to give to the poor. But in verse 30, as soon as Judas has said these things, as as soon as, excuse me, as soon as Jesus has said these things, and as Judas has received the bread, he departs to betray Jesus. 
And for John to say it was night is not merely a reflection of the time of day, although it's that also, but it carries the motif of the darkness of evil in contrast to light. In contrast to light, which represents the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and of the the very goodness and truth and justice and righteousness of God embodied in the divine Savior. But the hour and the deeds of Satan and of those who are doing his bidding is darkness. It is night. And Jesus will say the same thing to those who come to arrest him. This is your hour, that of darkness. Imagine John reflecting back on this moment. We have here, we have Jesus we have Judas, and we have John. Imagine John reflecting back on Judas's betrayal. Why isn't John filled with bitterness and rage toward Judas? Why does John sound so calm? Why was Jesus calm? Why does John sound so calm? While he would be saddened by the wicked hard-heartedness of men and of Judas in particular, John accepts and trusts God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereign goodness should give us a calm assurance. Trust in God's sovereign goodness should give us a calm assurance. Even in the midst of things that cause us hurt and grief and sadness, trust in God's sovereign goodness should manifest itself in us as a calm assurance. Jesus was knowingly releasing his betrayer to do and set in motion the events that would lead to his death on a cross. Which leads us forward to John's explanation from Christ himself as to why he would do such a thing and how we can be like him. Why would Jesus do such a thing? John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The question that I ask when I read this section and in this context, why does God go through with this? Why does God go through with this? Because he is glorified in displaying his sacrificial love. God does this because he is glorified. God is glorified in the sacrificial love of Christ, a love we are to exemplify, to bring glory to God. With the events of his impending sacrifice set in motion, Jesus sets his eyes beyond the agony of the cross to the result of the cross and resurrection. He sets his sights on the glory to God that this act of sacrifice and resurrection brings. So this is the divine view. It's God's own perspective of the passion events. 
Now, as the verb glorify is used in these verses repeatedly, we ought to be sure we understand what it means. So to glorify is to, to exalt, to praise, to, to positively acknowledge, recognize, or esteem one's, one's character, nature, and attributes. To be glorified, then, is to be exalted, praised, honored, to be made or understood as, as truly wonderful, magnified. God is glorified in this. And in verse 31, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is his way of, of referring to himself that not, only he that, that not only emphasizes his true humanity, he is God in human flesh, but this term, Son of Man, also has Old Testament overtones from Daniel that emphasize he is the glorified eschatological king who rules over all, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. God glorifies the Son of Man through his sacrificial death, resurrection, and exaltation. And through the Son of Man is God also glorified. So in verse 32, therefore, because of the unity of the Godhead, God will glorify him in himself. And the term immediately or at once refers to the, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension within a very short time frame. So we really should ask ourselves, like the question I started with after we read the verses, why does God provide salvation this way? Why does God go through with it? And why does God provide salvation this way? I believe the best answer really is because it best expresses God's glory. God goes through with it this way because it best expresses his glory. If there were some other way that were a better expression of his glory, he would do that. Because that's how God is. To be consistent with himself. The sacrificial love of God is the ideal means by which God is most glorified. Every part of God's plan is perfect. And nowhere is this more supremely manifest than in God's own sacrificial love. And in verse 33, because of Christ's impending departure, because of his impending departure, Jesus again turns to preparing his disciples to live in his absence. You can't follow me now, but you will later, he says to Peter. I'm going to prepare a place for you, chapter 14, verse 2. But in the meantime, here's how I expect you to live. Follow my example of love. You may remember that we said last time when we were in John 13 that I gave you a working definition of love and I've added an emphasis to it because of this text. Love is a deep relational affection that desires and strives for the highest glory or highest good of another at the very real cost of personal sacrifice. Notice how my definition takes its, its cue from this very section of Scripture. It strives, it's a deep relational affection that desires and strives for the highest glory or highest good of another. Highest glory with relationship to God, highest good in relationship to humans. At the very real cost. 
of personal sacrifice. In verse 34, since loving God supremely and loving others, loving God supremely and loving others as you love yourself was previously commanded by God. So in what sense is Jesus' commandment new? It's new in the sense that it institutes the new covenant, but it's new in the sense that it gives unique expression so that it gives unique expression to what God's love looks like. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. A unique marker of Christ's people is supposed to be that Jesus' love becomes the model for us to follow and the means for us to love, and the motivation for us to love. As we continue to see the the context of Peter's denial, this will become even more plain to you, but in verse 35, this most complete and full expression of love will be the thing that marks you, Jesus says, as my people, loving sacrificially to the utmost, John 15, 13, to the utmost, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Loving unceasingly to the end, John 13, verse 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And loving to the glory of God, this context, verse 31. So without Christ's love and and without his love poured into our hearts by his spirit, we cannot love as he loves. Jesus is also the means for us to have this love. And then his love poured out for you on a cross is your motivation to love like Jesus. The price that he paid to purchase you motivates you to love God the way that he has loved you. In this context of Christ's love, then, what's the point of Jesus foretelling Peter's denial? Really interesting that John has this foretelling of Peter's denial right after this discussion. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you you cannot follow me now, but you will afterward, both in suffering and in going to his presence. At death. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can, I, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Why is Peter's profession of devotion insufficient by itself to succeed? Why is Peter's profession of devotion that he means from the bottom of his bones, with every fiber of his being, he means it? Why is it insufficient to succeed? Loving Jesus and loving like him cannot be accomplished by our own strength of determination. Our commitment to Jesus is misdirected when we are not depending wholly on him for salvation and we're not depending wholly on him for direction, and we're not depending wholly on him for strength. Even our commitment to Jesus can be misdirected. If 
we don't depend on him for salvation, direction, and strength. Verses 36 and 37, while Jesus is focusing on the way that they must love, Peter's stuck on where Jesus is going and why he can't come. Lord, where are you going? Why can't I come? And then Peter pronounces the depth of his devotion to Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. You should let me come. I'll lay down my life for you. Can't you just hear the emphasis in Jesus' response? Will you lay down your life for me? You're willing to give up, to set aside your life for my sake? Sadly, Peter, as incontrovertible evidence that you are not as devoted as you think you are, you will deny me three times before the, cru- before the rooster crows. This same night before daybreak, you'll deny that you even know me. Peter's probably thinking, what on earth could Jesus be talking about? And and when Jesus says this to him, if he's thinking, what on earth is he talking about? If I were Peter, I'd be even more resolved in my own determination that I certainly will not deny Jesus. This will not happen. He's even warned me about it. So is the point just that Peter is the biggest failure? Or is it that Peter needs salvation? We need salvation. And we must abide in Jesus to be controlled by his spirit to live for Jesus. Christ's love is something we cannot accomplish on our own. We can't love as he loves without believing in him to be changed. And we can't love as he loves without abiding in him so that his spirit controls us. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me, you can bear much fruit. Peter's determination and strength of will does him no good without believing and abiding in Jesus, who would demonstrate the love of God through his sacrificial death and resurrection so that we can have new life in God. And then new life, Jesus' love poured into us by his spirit, then we can live for him. In fact, Luke 22 tells us this way. Jesus explains to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, plural, that he might sift you like wheat, all of you, the disciples. But I have prayed for you, Peter, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter would learn from this just how much he needed salvation through Jesus and how much he needs to depend on Jesus in order to be like him. The bottom line is that we need God. To glorify God, we need God. To love like Jesus, we need Jesus. God is glorified in his sovereign will beyond our betrayal. God is glorified in his own sacrificial love displayed through Christ. And God is glorified when when Jesus is our sufficiency. God is glorified. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He correctly says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we desperately depend on him, 
the most is when we glorify God the most. So devote your heart to depending on Jesus. Devote your heart to depending on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all the glory for what it is that you have done and what it is that you are doing. We thank you that your plans are always perfect and you are doing that which from, the, from within the goodness of your own nature generates the most glory for yourself. We thank you, God, for revealing to us that, that this is not some strange feature of your deity, but it is precisely because you are God that it needs to be this way. And we thank you that we are privileged to know it and privileged to participate in it. Thank you for choosing us to be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for letting us to be belong to you and serve you. Thank you for giving us the privilege of learning to love like Jesus as we depend on him. And above all these things, God, may you be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.